House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. And, of course, Mr. Michael Butterfield. Hi, Al. Is joining us. Well, yeah, hey, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm glad to be here today. Yeah, another another be- bright, beautiful day. And a great interview lined up. Yeah, a great interview. One of the best of the true crime nonfiction writers, I think, going. Definitely. You know, uh, someone that actually does the research, gets in there, and does a great book. And I don't say that lightly. There's only a few that I say that about. So now today we are going to be talking Waco, and it's the name of the new book um, from Jeff Gwynn. So thank you for being here, Jeff. It's a pleasure, guys. Jeff, um, how did you get involved in the Waco story enough to where you actually wanted to write about it? Well, I wanted to write about it back in 1993 when it was all going on. I was working for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram then, but I was away on another assignment uh, working as a migrant worker (laughs) down in the valley. So the way I learned about what was going on at Mount Carmel was the same way a lot of other people did. You know, at night I'd watch on TV, CNN or whatever, to see what was going on and kept wondering, well, when's it going to be over? What's what's happening? Why is it dragging out? I always felt like the story had never really been completely told. There were a lot of aspects of it I wondered about no one ever seemed to get into. And then January 6, 2021, with the assault on the Capitol and some of the leaders of that assault, their websites proudly proclaim Waco got them involved in militias and preparation to fight the government. And it seemed to me that uh, it might be useful to have a book that tried to get all the facts about what happened at Mount Carmel and maybe see how that tied into things happening today. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people realize how connected all of that is. Definitely. Um, you know, right from, from that to the uh, Oklahoma bombing, um, there's so much involved here. H- how was it for you to go back and actually um, interview with people that were part of the uh, arrest let's say, movement. Well, one of the things I always try to do when I write these books is there's one or two go-to sources that everybody wants to interview, and I like to kind of poke around and see if I can find people who who haven't talked before. We were able to do some of that, not just with surviving Branch Davidians, but the, the actual agents from ATF who participated in the initial operation had all been... Uh, ordered not to talk about it all these years. They never had had a chance to explain their side of it. Uh, The FBI, as we all know, is notoriously cooperative, wanting to uh, go into great detail about any mistakes they might have made or why they did what they did. (laughs) But we were able to find a a source who actually served as the uh, on-site scribe, having to keep track of everything that was being done. And he cooperated. So For me, as well as hopefully for the readers of the book, you're hearing from 50 or 60 people who were intricately involved and never had spoken on the record before. So hopefully that means there's a lot of fresh information. What was that like trying to convince people to talk to you? I know that can be difficult sometimes, especially the bigger the case is. One of the things that I've always found works for me, and I I need to stress I don't claim the way I do things is the way everyone else should. You can't just call somebody up cold and say, hey, yeah. you know, I, you've never talked about this and it's critical, so I'm going to knock on your door at 8 tomorrow morning and you need to tell me everything. I, I actually try to get in touch with people and communicate with them 
you know, for, for weeks or even months ahead of the time I, I come see them in person. Mm. And I always try to take the, the tact of not saying, tell me everything, but can you help me understand what happened? Most people like to explain, and whether it's an ATF agent or an FBI scribe or a surviving Branch Davidian, if they think someone's willing to listen to their version of what happened, they'll talk. It's just a matter of being patient and listening and not just slamming them with questions. You uh, said that there were aspects of the story that are often overlooked. What, what are some of those aspects? We have never really had any input into the ATF, not just how they originally became involved, but how the whole idea of dynamic entry at Mount Carmel came about. The 76 agents who were on the ground involved in that operation never had really talked on the record except for some congressional testimony that was very stilted. Certainly, we didn't know much about the FBI and the fact that their tactical and negotiating teams were just clashing the whole time during the siege until the negotiators finally won out. And nobody, to my knowledge, ever really looked at the background of the Branch Davidians. Where did they start, sort of get started? How did they evolve into what they were, and how did they get to Waco? It was almost as though David Koresh, Mount Carmel, were just there full-blown. And if we don't understand where they came from and how they came to believe what they did, then how can we understand what they did? Now, for the listeners who may not be familiar, would you mind explaining a little bit about who David Koresh was and what happened that day and why? In February of 1993, agents from ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, executed what they called the dynamic entry at Mount Carmel, which was the huge sort of hulking home of some 120 Branch Davidians just outside Waco, Texas. The Branch Davidians were an offshoot originally from Seventh-day Adventists. They were led by a man whose birth name was uh, Vernon Wayne Howell, and he had changed his name to David Koresh. They believed he was a prophet, the lamb from the book of Revelation in the Bible, who was going to first explain to the world what the seven seals on the great book of heaven that's described in the book of Revelation meant, and then lead his followers in a battle against the forces of Babylon, the United States government, to fit what in Revelation is promised as the final battle when Jesus Christ finally returns and the kingdom of God is proclaimed in the world. The ATF knew nothing of that and didn't care. All they cared about was that the Branch Davidians at Mount Carmel had a great number of illegal automatic weapons that had not been registered nor taxes paid on them. And because these gun laws were being broken, because ATF had been told by former Branch Davidians that the group at Mount Carmel was preparing to initiate a fight against the government, might even involve them taking their automatic weapons and going down into Waco and shooting a bunch of innocent civilians. ATF acted at the request of the county sheriff. They planned an operation that did not work. It was a disaster on that day and grew into a worse one with an FBI siege until finally after 51 days, the FBI inserted great quantities of 
flammable gas. A fire did break out. Most of the Branch Davidians in Mount Carmel were burned to death. Only nine escaped. And ever since, Mount Carmel has been seen as an example of government overreach and too many proof that the government plots to try to destroy, if necessary, Christian gun-owning citizens. So the mythology has been in place for 30 years. Now, you said that the the plan didn't work. And I think from reading from the book and history itself, it's obviously clear that they lost the element of surprise, which was what the whole mission was based on, I guess. And after reading your book, I'm not surprised that uh, it didn't work because apparently everybody in town uh, was hearing about it. The reporters had been informed about something happening. They were The ATF was booking ambulances and things. And I'm really curious, what do you think would have happened if they did have the element of surprise? There were two mistakes that ATF made right away. The first was that they never bothered trying to find out what this religious group believed inside Mount Carmel. They thought that was unimportant. The only thing that mattered was they had illegal guns. They had no idea that these people in Mount Carmel were not only waiting but hoping for some kind of federal assault and they would be ready to fight. The second mistake ATF made was taking the word of disgruntled former Branch Davidians who hadn't even been at Mount Carmel for over a year, that all the guns were kept in a locked storage room inside the compound, and David Koresh would have to give an order for people to go to the room, get the guns out, pass the guns out, pass out ammunition, set up, be ready to fight. The element of surprise they thought would be necessary because they could break into Mount Carmel, 76 agents on the morning of February 28th, and get between the Branch Davidians and their guns, just negate that whole threat right there. When, in fact, uh, in the last year, Koresh had not only passed out guns to all the, all the adult Branch Davidians, but had trained them in their use. So there wasn't going to be any sort of gap between the Branch Davidians seeing ATF coming and being able to fight them. So if surprise hadn't been lost, ATF would have gotten there. They probably would have gotten through the front door, but there still would have been the firefight that ATF was certain could not happen because you've got a sprawling sort of complex, this building, People on several floors all racing to get their guns, automatic weapons, powerful weapons. There would have been one hell of a fight with lots of casualties. And due to the lack of surprise, that's still what happened, only with ATF not even being able to get into the building in the first place. There's a, there's a lot of different um, documentaries and shows that have been put out about this case. And uh, it seems like a lot of the focus is on who did the first shot yeah. and making it that that's important. Uh, what's your comment on that? There's controversy about the first shot. There always will be. I've talked to a lot of the, not a lot, but I've talked to surviving former Branch Davidians, all of whom are convinced ATF came out of cattle cars right in front of their front door and started shooting. They have no doubt about this. The ATF agents on the ground are equally adamant. The minute the cattle trucks pulled up, basically fire started coming down at them from all the different rooms and, and floors of Mount Carmel. We'll never know for certain, but what would sway me is I tried to find some objective, non-involved observers 
And members of the Waco media, who'd been also tipped to what was going to happen, were surrounding the property and were actually watching as this played out. In particular, three uh, staffers from the Waco Daily Newspaper were right across the road from the front of the compound and saw it all. And each of them says separately that there is no question the firing started from inside the compound out at the ATF agents. They're all absolutely certain of this. And to me, that kind of sways what I think probably happened, though we'll never know for certain. And the whole idea that David Koresh was uh, a prophet, this played into his prophecies, right? And I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about Cyrus Teed, where where those uh, connections may have originated from. You know, this is my 25th book, and if you're doing your job as a researcher, as you guys both know, even if you're writing about some well-known event or individual, there's always going to be some new information. But I never, ever expected to find what I did in working on this book, it absolutely staggered me. We have documentation, we have the actual proof that David Koresh plagiarized all his major prophecies and even his name from the work of an earlier American self-styled prophet, a guy named Cyrus Teed, who got with his followers outside Fort Myers, Florida almost a century earlier, Cyrus Teed proclaimed himself Koresh, that angels had revealed to him. He was the new incarnation of King Cyrus from the Old Testament. Cyrus in Hebrew is pronounced Koresh. That he was the lamb of the book of Revelation, that he was going to open the seven seals, and he was going to lead his followers against Babylon. Everything that David Koresh said just about a century later, not one original thing in it. I uh, went in Florida, went down to Florida to track all Cyrus Teed's original prophecies and writing. Was able to track that back to a woman named Lois Roden, who led the Branch Davidians before Vernon Wayne House, soon to become David Koresh, even joined. Um, she basically trained him. He was her spiritual heir, and we even found the book at the public library. Teed's prophecies, the first Koresh word for word what the second Koresh was preaching to his followers. David Koresh's enthusiasm and zeal, I think, were, were probably genuine. But his prophecies were secondhand, and there's proof of that. That's pretty fascinating, and you're right. I have to admit, when I was reading the book, I was blown away by that. I mean, how most people don't have any idea about that, and they won't really unless they read your book, because I've never seen or heard about that anywhere else. Well, one of the things that I always try to tell people who say now, you know, are you sure you're right? Uh, I have extensive chapter notes throughout my books. You know, anything that's in there, including the Cyrus Teed information, I will always specify where I'm drawing this from, whether it's archival documents, whether it's old books, whether it's individual interviews. And people can check this for themselves. They don't have to take my word for it. I was literally blown away. I kept thinking, there, ha you know, I'm, I'm missing something. This can't be true. And yet you follow the trail, and I, I think the book lays it out pretty completely. 
there it is. Uh, it's convinced biblical scholars who had studied the Branch Davidians for years and years. And, you know, I gave them the material to, to look at, and we have their conclusions in the book. The only people who refuse to believe it are the surviving Branch Davidians, and I'm not surprised at that. They've spent 30 years with their belief in Koresh as the original lamb and his prophecies. That sustained them all these years, and here comes somebody saying, um, maybe you need to look at this. They don't want to look, and who can blame them? I don't know about all of them, but some of his survivors are still waiting for him to return, Yeah, if, if that's right. Cause... Of all the surviving Branch Davidians I talked to, and there's fewer and fewer of them by the year. I mean, they're getting up there. Every one of the survivors I talk to still believes that David Koresh was the Lamb of Revelation, that everything that happened at Waco at Mount Carmel is what was ordained in the book of Revelation, and that David Koresh is going to come back as the Lamb, as, as Revelation promises, gather up his surviving followers, and this time lead them to victory against Babylon. It's their unshakable faith. Uh, they wouldn't care what kind of proof you showed them that it might be otherwise. This um, story has um, really been the center of a lot of um, conspiracy and misinformation and craziness out there. I guess even Alex Jones is involved at case. Oh, Lord, yes. And, and so... But 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 there's a huge draw for this right now. This this society right now seems to feed off of this, and they're almost as dedicated to to let's say Alex Jones as someone is to the Bible. I I don't understand it. Um, explain what what kind of um, you know impact Alex Jones has had on the case. Well, talk about Alex Jones. We actually need to jump a few years ahead of him getting involved from the time that the siege surrounded Mount Carmel. There were already individuals and groups who were claiming that this was some kind of government conspiracy. Uh, ATF and FBI following orders from some dark corner of the government to wipe out innocent, gun-owning Christian American citizens. I have a picture in my book of a guy named Timothy McVeigh sitting on the hood of his truck outside Mount Carmel during the siege peddling anti-government T-shirts and bumper stickers. And two years to the day after Mount Carmel burned, McVeigh blew up a federal building in Oklahoma City and after he was captured claimed it was in retaliation for Waco, putting back in the government's face what they did to us. Conspiracists, but even more so people who gain influence, fame, and money from describing conspiracies, uh, have flocked to this whole idea ever since. Uh, a few years after the Waco tragedy, and believe me, it was a tragedy. It wasn't a conspiracy. It was terrible decisions made by lead agents for ATF and FBI. But that's not a conspiracy. That's individual incompetence. They were having a memorial service on the Mount Carmel grounds. Uh, the service was being led by a former a surviving Branch Davidian named Clive Doyle. And a burly guy from Austin who had been doing little podcasts out of his garage grabbed the microphone, identified himself as Alex Jones, and started railing to the crowd all about the government and how this, this terrible thing had been done and that uh, if there's ever another Waco, if he can get there first, 
And uh, basically, Jones built his uh, conspiracy empire uh, on what happened or what he alleged happened at Waco. He's not the only one. Uh, armed militias in America, again, the statistics are all in the book, and readers can check for themselves the source of these things. But suddenly, hundreds of militias sort of popped up like uh, poisonous mushrooms around the country. And if you look at the websites of those that have survived, they all got started because we can't risk another Waco. We have to be armed and ready. If we look at the people who are currently being sentenced to jail for their actions January 6, 2021, assault on the Capitol, uh, almost all these people claim that Waco was their incentive to start getting interested in anti-government, which, of course, the Trump MAGA movement just took full advantage of. And finally, uh, you know, just a couple weeks ago, we had this uh, young National Guardsman, Teixeira, who was uh, taking secret documents and posting them online. And uh, when he was caught, they looked at some of his writings on the web. And this is a kid who wasn't even born until 10 years after Mount Carmel, and yet he's citing what happened there as his reason to mistrust the government. So Waco has this long, terrible tale, and it's people like Alex Jones that are responsible for that. And I think it's important to note that, you know, Waco came on the heels of Ruby Ridge, which was another awful tragedy. But unlike that, Waco was televised. And so those government mistakes were seen by everybody for, what, 51 days? Um, I'm curious to know what you think about the fact that, you know, all these years later, people are still inspired by this, and they're still using it as their justification for what they're doing. But at the same time, the government has tried to learn from their mistakes in that event. What, what do you think about that? You're right, you're right about all this. You guys are probably a lot younger than me. You know, I remember watching it on TV, and you get mesmerized by it. CNN was really the first 24-7 cable news network at the time. But for the first time, Americans were able to be watching a tragedy unfold 24-7, and it dragged out and it dragged out until the final fatal fire. The thing that always gets overlooked, I am not an apologist for the mistakes that ATF and FBI made. Those are thoroughly documented. The individuals who made those mistakes, uh, that ended their careers, essentially, and it should have. But it's also true that if we look at this one immutable fact, 30 years ago, ATF and FBI blundered, they overreached, and people died who did not need to die, and that is awful. But... It's been 30 years, and in those three decades, occasionally, there have been sieges, ATF, FBI, on anti-government groups or religious groups. It's never happened again. The FBI and ATF learned at horrible cost of human life in Waco in 1993 to be more restrained and to let events play out and to try better to understand why the people being besieged were doing what they were doing. If now we have people screaming, oh, we've got to protect ourselves from the government, they may come at us like they did at those poor innocent people in Waco. 
hey, it's been 30 years. It hasn't happened. Pay attention to the facts and not the hyperbole. When, when you wrote this book, um, at the end of it, um, how do you think it changed you yourself? Well, writing the book scared the crap out of me, to tell you the truth. Uh, I've written previous books about demagogues, uh, in some sense religious demagogues. I've written about Charlie Manson. I've written about Jim Jones. David Koresh and the Branch Davidians are so different. They're usually lumped together, and yet they're not the same thing at all. Uh, Charlie Manson was just a ex-pimp con artist who persuaded some drug-addled kids to commit a couple horrible crimes that, that got a lot of publicity. And then Charlie was a showman and sold himself in all the years afterward. Jim Jones and People's Temple was really about cultural change, not religion. Equality of race, equality of gender. And until drugs and hubris twisted Jones into a monster, he and his followers actually accomplished some good things. David Koresh and the Branch Davidians believed they were doing what God wanted. They were biblical literalists who put really terrible connotations into their interpretations of Scripture, or at least Koresh did that, and his followers chose to believe it. They were doing what they thought God wanted, and that is frightening as hell. And because of that, they are seen by many as Christian martyrs. Religion, in any form, if taken to extremes, can literally go beyond the pale, not just of law, but of decency. Koresh's followers believed that he had the heavenly mandate to do such things as commit polygamy with uh, any women who were part of the Branch Davidian Circle at Mount Carmel. They believed it was his God-given right to have sex with little girls as young as 12, and in the book we even have proof that he had sexual contact with little ones as young as 10. Freedom of religion is one thing, and we all believe in it, but at some point you have to draw the line. For me, it's raping children. And I was going to ask you, too, um, a friend of mine and I were discussing your books yesterday, and he brought up a great point about your book about Manson, which is that, you know, you really cut him down to size. You really shrank him down to a, I guess you could say, a, a more realistic portrait other than the caricature is what we've seen. And I have to say, I think you really did the same thing with David Koresh. Um, what is the... What do you think is the, the main difference between the way he's portrayed in the media or even by his followers and the, the facts that you came upon? We know that David Koresh was a plagiarist. It may have been, and in the book we, we give this side of it too, that he didn't know he was. He uh, was learning his trade from Lois Roden, who preceded him, preceded him as a leader of the Branch Davidians, and she had been stealing ideas from Cyrus Teed uh, for years before Vernon Wayne Howe showed up there. The problem is followers who have basically based their lives for so many years on believing what a demagogue has told them, is they get in so far, they can't just sort of step back and say, you know, I was wrong, I've been taken advantage of. Faresh, if we give him, leeway at all, may have believed, had may have talked himself into thinking he was the lamb of the book of Revelation. 
But that doesn't forgive the fact that he, like every other demagogue before him, be they religious demagogues or political demagogues, immediately began adding more goodies for himself or herself at the expense of followers. In Mount Carmel, you weren't allowed to smoke. David Koresh smoked because the Bible said he could. At Mount Carmel, there's very little electricity in the middle of the torrid Waco summers, no air conditioning, except in David Koresh's room where there's a window unit. None of the men at Mount Carmel can have sex. David Koresh says this this helps them concentrate more on worshiping God, yet David Koresh had serial sex with their wives and daughters. No demagogue ultimately can resist taking some extra things for himself or herself. And that's true in religion, and it's true in politics. And religion and politics really are rife for demagoguery, and we've had that throughout American history. We have religious leaders like Koresh saying, you know, if you don't do exactly what I say, you're going to hell. Then you get politicians. If you don't vote for me, America's doomed. We're a nation that too often embraces demagogues. And that's a good point to touch on, too, with Manson. Um, What do you think the difference was between the public image of him or his caricature and what you came across? Because you really did a great job of digging into his life. Charlie Manson, one of the mistakes we make about people, I think, generally, is that if they aren't educated, we think they're stupid. Charlie was a mean, nasty SOB. He was only interested in himself, but that man understood how to con people. Uh, His favorite description of himself was man of a thousand hats. He said he could act one way with one person, turn around, and be someone completely different to a second person and so forth. He used his trial for for the Tate LaBianca murders basically to present himself as this irresistibly interesting character to America, and he carried that on in all the years he was incarcerated right up to his death. Every few years you'd have Charlie going nuts at a parole hearing or granting an interview and then saying something outrageous. The last couple of years of his life, there was some very young female follower, and Charlie had followers to the end, who claimed that they were engaged and she was going to marry him. That's right, yeah. I remember being called by some interviewer when that story broke and said, what would you say to this young lady who thinks she's (laughs) marrying Charlie Manson? (laughs) And I said, well, you might want to tell her she shouldn't go register at Kmart or Walmart quite yet (laughs) because Charlie never follows through. He knew how to play the media, which in of itself is playing the public. And Koresh, if he hadn't died horribly, I think would have had some of that same ability. Uh, He would have started, you know, quoting scripture here and there just so sincerely. He would have said colorful, interesting things, and there would have been more stories and more stories. Manson wanted to be famous. That was his goal. And David Koresh, Vernon Wayne Howell, high school dropout, somebody who by secular standards wasn't qualified to lead a one-man parade, wanted to be recognized as the greatest prophet, the greatest God-touched thing, living entity ever on earth, and that would include Jesus and all the biblical prophets before him. And you said that Manson talked about being a man with a thousand hats. He could play, you know, to everyone. Um, I was fascinated by his... uh, 
reliance on uh, the book How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. It seems to have worked for him, not necessarily for good. but <laughs> Well, you know, you talk about times I've been surprised during my interviews. Charlie had a, a prison mate from his days in the California Hooskow named Phil Kaufman. And Kaufman, after he got out of prison with Manson, went on to become sort of a world-famous uh, uh, equipment manager for rock and roll acts, from Emmylou Lou Harris to the Rolling Stones to Graham Parsons. And I caught up with Phil Kaufman in Nashville. He was in his early 80s. He was riding one of the biggest, loudest uh, Harley Davidsons I'd ever seen in my life. We sat down, and I said to Phil, you know, one thing I can't figure out, I've been talking to former Manson followers, and they all claim he had this mystic powers. He could read minds. He knew what they were thinking before they even knew they were thinking it. I mean, did you ever see anything like that? And Kaufman laughed so hard he cried and said, I've been waiting all these goddamn years for somebody to ask that question. Because <laughs> he's with Manson in prison. And when Manson's in prison, he got hold of how to Win Friends and Influence People, the book by Dale Carnegie. And Kaufman said, look at Chapter 9. Go in there, look at Chapter 9. And I did. And the chapter is all about let the other fellow think your idea is his own. And I went back and I called up the you know surviving former members of the Manson family. Did you ever hear Charlie say this, 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 or this? And they're going, that's it, exactly. That's every word. How did you know that? David Koresh plagiarized from Cyrus Teed, Charlie Manson copped from Dale Carnegie. That's just an amazing backstory there. And I think it's important to note, too, that, you know, Manson's ability to influence people and, uh, you know, you said he wanted to be famous. He definitely was somewhat successful at that in his early uh, days in the Bay Area and California, and especially in Hollywood where he was – you know, running with the Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys, and there's a story in Michael Caine's, uh, uh, the actor Michael Caine's memoir, where he talks about Cass Elliot from the Mamas and the Papas introducing him to Charles Manson at a party where a couple of the victims from the Manson murders were there. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, and is there any truth to that? Or It's true. Manson knew how to ingratiate himself with certain people. We think of him, of course, as sort of this horrible, drug-addicted monster. But for a long time, he was just another wannabe rock star. And he thought that if he could only make the acquaintance of the right people down in Los Angeles, he'd get a record deal and be bigger than the Beatles. Now, it is true that uh, he fell in with Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, and he even uh, made some tapes of his songs at Brian Wilson's house in Bel Air, California. Phil Kaufman was part of those sessions, and uh, he lent me the tapes from that night. Oh, wow. I don't claim to be uh, a great music critic, but I did have two sons, they're grown now, who played in seventh grade high school rock bands and would rehearse in my garage. And I can tell you this after listening to Charlie Manson's music, that those seventh graders would not have let him in the band. He was that awful. <laughs> there was never any chance he would get a record deal, but he was so fascinating in person that Dennis Wilson, Cass Elliott, and John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas, Neil Young, they mm -hmm. all hung out with him. Neil Young yeah. even recommended him to his, produ to his record label producer, though 
nothing came of that. And I think Neil probably doesn't like to talk about it too much in all these years since. Well, and I, I think it's important to note, too, that the circles he was running in, he apparently had come into contact with some of these victims, and that leads to theories about conspiracies and ulterior motives. Um, I'm curious to ask you what you think of the, uh, the premise of the book Chaos about Manson, the CIA, and MKUltra, and oh, yeah. all those theories <laughs> about the victims being involved in drug deals with him and you know, people claiming that he had, they had lunch with Abigail Folger and Manson and things like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Heard it all. I first want to say that I never consider any of my nonfiction books to be absolutely definitive. No one's ever going to get everything. I mean, there are certainly things that I could, I didn't think about that I could have explored when I was trying to research it and would have missed. That's always possible. On the other hand, I will tell you, I've been doing this for a long time, and I've Anything that I put in my books, I absolutely document. I don't have unnamed sources. I don't report rumor. If I discuss a rumor and I can't find any substantiation of it, I put that in the book, too. It is possible. Charlie Manson was a CIA agent. Charlie Manson was this. Charlie Manson was that. All I can do is tell you I spent three years of my life, and I tracked down people from every part of Charles Manson's life and never found a, a hint of it. Conspiracy theories are wonderful in that they're like cotton candy. They look good, they might taste yummy, but then they leave an awful aftertaste, and it's like they were never there. So maybe the book Chaos uh, was just brilliant research, and I missed everything that was in it. I don't think so. It's possible. Well, I was especially interested in asking you about that because I had read an article where you were talking about a, an, an early book signing event or something like that where a homeless man in the audience jumped up and said, why don't you tell them the truth that Manson was a spy for the CIA? <laughs> How did you respond to that? Yeah, and that was live on C-SPAN. Yeah, right. by the way. <laughs> uh, you know, it's kind of hard to know how to uh, respond to that. But that just shows the power of myths, made-up stories, conspiracy theories. The truth is always much more interesting. And ask yourselves this, whether it's Charlie Manson or what happened at Mount Carmel, if there's some vast government conspiracy, how could so many years go by in an era now where we can get, you know, we can check all kinds of documents where everything's documented. Somebody somewhere wouldn't have let some part of that slip or be overcome by conscience, it's not there. But the more we let people get out there and sell it, the conspiracy mongers, you know, freedom of speech is great. I believe in it, obviously. But freedom of speech also at least tries to factor in the belief that common sense will be used. And there's lots of people who abandon common sense because they just want to believe in something that sounds kicky. Common sense is not so common. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Less and less common. Yeah. Well, and that, that brings up, uh, are you worried about any sort of a conspiratorial backlash from, from your book and doing a promo in a sense? Because, you know, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to think that you're, you know, you're a shill or you're on the government <laughs> yeah. side, right? I mean, I get accused of that, you know, so. 
What's interesting usually in my books is I'm being accused of uh, being a shill for both sides. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for instance, in this book, I've had people accuse me of being part of the government conspiracy, and I've also been accused of being an apologist for the Branch Davidians. That usually makes me think, well, at least I'm kind of doing it down the middle. <laughs> I, I don't, you know, in my books themselves, I do not take sides. My job is not to tell the reader this is what you must think. My job is to find the facts, particularly the facts that haven't been presented before. Put them out there along with some kind of listing of exactly where I got everything so that readers just don't have to take my word. They can look for themselves. And then I'm hoping after seeing all these things, after weighing facts, as opposed to hyperbole from people who are getting rich by trying to convince folks of conspiracy theories, make up your mind based on facts. That's all. Yeah, I, I don't have a whole lot of faith in that these days, but, you know, go for it. Uh, what, what is it at the end of the day, but someone picks up the book, reads it, takes it home, all that, and what is it you want them to take away? Are, are you trying to get a point across to them? There's two things that I hope people get from the book, really. This is the third major book I've written about a demagogue who's uh, gotten quite famous and whose actions have reverberated in history. And I'm hoping people might start to see some similarities, that maybe some warning signs that, that someone would be a demagogue. It might be dangerous to listen to this person. Manson, Jim Jones, Koresh, they all had in common that the first thing they do is declare there's this awful situation and I'm the only person that can save you from it. That's what demagogues say in religion or politics. And then from there, another warning sign is they try to isolate their followers. Don't hear any opinions other than mine or people who agree with me. Everybody else is the enemy. So there's that look into how demagogues operate. The second thing is, and again, we we realize this, all three of us, that there always are going to be people who don't care about facts. Well, this part of American history makes me uncomfortable, so we're going to get rid of all books that even refer to it. Or, well, I wish this hadn't happened, so it didn't happen. As much as possible for as many people as possible, history is there to teach us. Sometimes the lessons are painful, but how can we stop all the problems we've got now that have grown out of things that happened earlier, like the militia movements and the violence in America that come out of what happened in Waco 30 years ago? We can't fix things happening now if we don't understand and learn from things that happened earlier that precipitated today's issues. Those are all big things. I mean, I hope in one way when people read my books, they just enjoy the books. They like the writing. But most of all, I hope maybe they'll find some things in it that will be useful to them as, as they try to think through history and what we can learn from it. So what do you got planned next? What big project after this? Well, uh, there's a movie that's coming up based on a book of mine that I am going to be getting involved with, and so that'll be taking up a little time. Then after that, I've got a couple different ideas. Maybe you guys uh, can give me some encouragement one way or the other. I'd like to take a look at the whole militia movement and some of the uh, atrocities since. How did that grow out of Waco? How do we get from 1993 to now? 
whether it's following a militia group, a couple individuals who got caught up in it. Don't you think that might be interesting to take a look at how it progressed? Oh, yeah, especially I was thinking earlier when you were talking about uh, Waco, about the Bundy Ranch standoff and the bird sanctuary standoff and how those things played out on television as well. That might work, and I'm also thinking about maybe it's time to take a look at one of the big lead conspiracy theorists. Let's just see where this person's really coming from and as much about them as we can uh, we can find out. <laughs> I'd vote for all of those. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't want to mention names, but I've got somebody in mind. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could imagine, you know. Um, well, that's great. Now, um, before we wrap up, do you have like a website or places that you like to interact with readers or fans, or how do people get a hold of you? Well, I'm really uh, uh, social media primitive. I am on Facebook, and if a reader sends me a message, I always will try to respond within 24 hours unless it's threatening me or calling me names. And I can always be contacted through my publisher as well. Well, fantastic. Of course, we'll have all that up, and we'll have the book, of course, and everything needed so people can find it with one click. So it's been a, it's been a very, very informative show, a uh, great writer. Um, Thank you for being here, Jeff Gwynn. You guys do a great job. I really feel honored that you're willing to have me as a guest. Oh, we loved having you, believe me. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Something with media. I'll be back.